I know your old man eyes are not as good as mine. Well, it's the action seeing in the distance gets easier. Oh, really? I didn't know that. Friday, June 14th, 2019, and this is the Dutch News Podcast, your weekly chance to catch up with what's been going on here in the Netherlands. I'm Molly Quell, contributing editor at Dutch News and avid reader. With me today is my fellow contributing editor at Dutch News, Gordon Derrick, who's currently writing a Dutch horror movie. Paul is conspicuously absent, as usual. Where we, is Paul? Today? I don't know. Yeah. Neither one of us actually know where Paul is. Is this connected to my horror movie? It's totally possible. <laughs> I mean, he's alive. He wrote the right. Opeth. So, yes. yeah. yeah I mean, so we've around. had contact with him. Yeah. So anyone who's worried about Paul, he's, he, he's uh, we a, think yeah. he's safe. He's fine. Yeah. Or he was last he night. He had to go know. check in on his drugs lab in Brabant. That's think, probably maybe. it. Yeah. 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 So, so how, uh, how's your horror movie coming? Well, I don't know. I've got um, the, the the initial concept. I think uh, yeah. Part of draft out. Yeah. The what basic... are you going to go with? Well, this is a thread I started on Twitter where I said where I said um, I had a one line pitch for a horror movie, which is basically that and following on from something we discussed last week that um, a Dutch person waking up in the morning and discovering that Bayernrader had stopped working would be just uh, the perfect start to a it Dutch horror movie. It is the scariest movie. thing. We should yeah. have put a trigger warning at the beginning of we the podcast actually, yeah, for our Dutch listeners. We didn't suggest that Bayernrader could break terrifying. down. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and in Anybody response, even, yeah. lots of people uh, weighed in with their other ideas yeah. of Dutch horror movies, like of things the Kostgraf goes missing. Yeah, or, or or someone can't find their agenda. Oh yeah, exactly. So yeah. any of these things would be a, would exactly. be a good premise for a Dutch horror movie. Yeah. I agree. So yeah, and uh, how's the reading going? Uh, do you want to know how many books I've read this year? I don't really it's know because I, I get book envy. A hundred and thirty-one. Jeez, it must be lovely to have so much time. I mean, so in my defense, I've been—it's been terrible because I've been sick a lot, and I've also had yeah. surgery once, and I'm gonna have surgery again next week, which means I'm just like laid up you and like reading. reading. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it's like real out of control at yeah, this point. Totally so, is. Yeah, it's been, terrific. Uh, but I've been—I've been tweeting each book as I've been reading it, and then occasionally people pop up and they're like, "Is this all the books that you've read in your life?" I'm like, no, just since <laughs> just since January. And people are like, "Is that possible?" I'm like, "It is when you don't watch TV ever." Mm. So there is that. But I don't watch TV ever either, and I've read yeah, but you probably have two less than kids, ten Gordon, books. Gordon, that's the that's the difference. <laughs> the trick is to have just gotten a dog and that not have true. had two children. Yeah, yeah, that would have made a big difference. Yeah. Uh, who's going to do the opath this week? Uh, whose turn is you? it to do the opath? I think it's you. Supermarket Albert Hein suffered a major malfunction with its payment terminal on Monday, leaving customers unable to pay with their debit cards. Other Ahold stores, such as Atos and Cholchol, were hit as well. The malfunction caused long lines at checkouts, chaos, and Apocalyptic. Api, api, apocalyptic. Is that what we're going? It's supposed with? to be app and apocalyptic. Yeah, ap, ap, app yeah. and apocalyptic. Yeah. yeah. Situations in the supermarkets all over the country. Photos of piles of abandoned manchas and crotches at the pin checkouts were widely shared on Twitter. There were reports of frustrated adult customers who yelled at the teenage cashiers. The pin storing was resolved on Monday night. Oh, thank goodness. Yeah, that was a Dutch horror movie in itself. That's also a Dutch yeah, horror a movie. Storing. The pin storing yeah. at Albert exactly. Hein. And yeah, everything exactly. down, yeah. I was once in Ikea when they had like a pin storing and yeah. that also caused like chaos and yeah. mass hysteria. Yeah, so people, yeah. people can't handle it. And it's just horrific just seeing sort of um, grown-ups just erupt because they can't pay at the checkout. They've yeah. got to queue for a little bit longer yeah. to get their groceries. Yeah, well, I mean, I get it because, I mean, like, I don't ever go to the grocery store with enough cash to cover no, no, my groceries. Yeah. So, like, you know, if the pin 
cuisine is not working. You're just like not getting your food. Yeah. But like, you know, this is a densely populated country <laughs> where like, so like, for example, the Albert Hine that we go to here in Delft, like directly across the street, there is a Yumbo. So like, you're not going to mm. starve to death, guys. No, like, just there go are solutions the out there. Yeah, yeah, exactly. There's probably a bank machine around the corner as well. Uh, yeah, exactly. Where you can get your cash. Yeah, there's usually well, a bank machine in the Albert Hine. Often there is, yeah. yeah. Or you can just get it delivered. Yeah, well, that's what we do. Yeah. It's easier. This week, Brexit is back, pensions are coming, and YouTube either loves or hates Nazis. It's unclear. Mm. In the discussion, we're going to talk about orphans. Ah, this will be a fun discussion again. Real uplifting. The King has weighed into the Brexit debate by expressing support for Ireland over the thorny issue of the border with the UK. During a three-day visit to Ireland with Queen Maxima, Willem Alexander said, quote, The spectres of the past cannot be allowed to return. No one wants to revisit the era of the Troubles. No one wants to see fences on the border. He was speaking at a banquet in Dublin, hosted by Irish President Michael Higgins. The visit aims to improve economic cooperation between the Netherlands and Ireland and is ending on Friday with a trip to Cork. This was, uh, was this the most uh, coherent thing said at any meeting between a monarch and a president this week? Without a shadow of a doubt, it was. Is that a, is that a stab <laughs> at uh, my country's esteemed president? Just I just wanted to contrast the fact that there was a meeting between uh, a king and a president in one country, whereas in the country next door, another president was meeting with, uh, with the queen um, and saying, uh, yeah, but, but the standard of the conversation, I think, was much, much lower. Uh, and was, yet the two, those two countries are supposed to be you know, the, the, the important and serious and heavyweight prestigious ones. Was there a giant uh, baby blimp of either the president or the monarch flown above this meeting? Strangely, no, there wasn't. Funny how that works. Yeah, yeah, Crazy. Yeah. So um, I heard a rumor that they did not manage to play the right national <laughs> anthem, though. Well, I think they did play the right national anthem in the end, but on the official sort of schedule that's sent around for the state visit, it uh, mentioned that uh, the national anthem was Sweden would be played yeah. to greet the uh, the king. Is yeah, anyone familiar I, with the national anthem of Sweden? I'm, I'm not. No, idea no, what it like. Well, the Swedes are. Probably. Yeah, probably. Yeah, but I don't know. Now it is, I suppose, easy to mix up these blonde Northern European monarchies. In fairness, it's true. Yeah. They're all tall and blonde. Yeah, at least exactly. it wasn't Denmark. Yeah, exactly. Usually the Dutch get mixed up with the Danes. Yeah, that's yeah, fair. So that's a change. Um, and so in other Irish news, there's been some friction between Scotland and Ireland. I see that you are just trying to shoehorn in unrelated <laughs> Dutch news so that you can talk about. Guano. I just thought apparently? this was uh, tremendously amusing. Did you hear about this at all? This, uh, uh, the, the fight over Rockall, the Battle of Rockall. Yes, I've yeah. heard. I think I saw something about it on Twitter. Yeah, well, Rockall is basically this well rock, literally, which is out in the middle of the Atlantic. It's about well 250 miles from anywhere. Uh, it's roughly equally distant between Scotland and Ireland, but it's uh, it is literally just inhabited by seagulls and covered in guano as a result. Uh, but, but there's been a bit of a row blown up about it because the Scottish government is going to be upset that Irish fishermen have been fishing in the waters around Rockall. Okay. And they said that there's a 12-mile exclusion zone, which hasn't really been enforced up until now because both countries are in the European Union, so they don't really not that bothered about it. But of course, now Brexit's looming on the horizon. Right. It's become a bone of contention. Uh, Irish Taoiseach uh, Leo Varadkar described it this week as, quote, essentially a sea stack in the middle of the ocean, uninhabitable, uninhabited, and I don't think it's something Ireland and Scotland should fight over. <laughs> He's reckoned without the determination of Scottish people to start a fight yeah. in an empty room, basically. I mean, you know, <laughs> the Irish can do the same. Right? Exactly. So, so the, 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 those two peoples of all would, 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 would be well qualified to fight over something as so semi-trivial as a, as a rock in the middle of the sea. So is it contentious, <laughs> is it disputed who owns the rock? Well, it is in a way. Well, the, the, the UK uh, claims ownership 
ship. There's an act, I think, from 1872, in which it's, uh, Britain has uh, laid claim to Rockall. Other countries don't claim it for themselves, but they argue it should just be neutral territory. It's ridiculous that anyone suggests that? that they own a place like that that's got no real value. Uh, but, of course, it's not about the rock itself. It's about the rights to fish around it, and there's talk that there might be uh, oil in, in the vicinity as well. Oh, okay. And, of course, now Brexit's coming up, and there's a board, you know, and suddenly these two countries are no longer going to be in the same economic trading block, it becomes a bit of an issue. And uh, possibly we might yet see a hard border on Rockall. On Rockall. <laughs> if this court, if this case goes to the, if this dispute goes to the European Court of Justice and I have to go cover this case in Luxembourg, <laughs> I'm going to be so mad. <laughs> well, rocks in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean are letting in too many Scottish fishermen and Dutch universities <laughs> are letting in too many slacker students and then failing them out in the first year. That's according to Independent Government Science and Technology Advisory Body, AWTI. In a report released this week, the AWTI called for stricter entrance requirements, greater differences between the universities in the Netherlands, and more involvement from the Ministry of Education, Culture, and Science. Part of the problem is, is that universities are rewarded financially for growing their student numbers, says AWTI. And what do the students think about it? Shockingly, they are not happy. Mm. Student organizations said that a stricter selection of bachelor students will make higher education less accessible, and that selection tests are quote random and not based on science right i mean uh, that, yeah. that seems pretty that's uh, pretty savage obviously yeah yeah um and there's been other university news this week there has been yeah. many foreign students do not feel at home in the netherlands and over 75 percent miss having contact with their dutch counterparts that's according to a survey by three student networks the lsv bay eso and the erasmus student network Foreign students are actively being recruited, but once they are in the Netherlands, they are confronted with a lack of affordable housing, they don't get Dutch lessons, and they find it hard to make contact with their Dutch peers, says Caroline van Bruegel of the LSV Bay. Yeah, this has definitely been an issue. and uh, think, yeah, it's uh, a long-standing issue. Yeah, in, in Delft, they've not set up a kind of buddy system where Dutch yeah, students get tried, paired up with Yeah, they've tried. They've had a few students. versions of this in yeah. Delft, and they keep just, like, not being successful at it so yeah it's been a real problem yeah and it's a, you know, so it can be a lonely place being an international student in a foreign country if you haven't got any connection or contacts in the, yeah um among the local student population yeah it can be tough going i agree yeah, yeah so they're, they're happy to take the money but not really happy Help to the, actually yeah, give them any kind of yeah that's you know, a bit of a cynical support. view yeah, yeah exactly right yeah are there any good education news this week? Well, hopefully for a lot of high school students, but not for their backpacks. It is a modern tradition in the Netherlands to hang the school bags of successful teenagers on a flagpole outside of the house to mark the end of their school days. Some 217,000 secondary school pupils heard this week if they passed their final exams. Well, congratulations to everyone who did. Yeah. Love's disappointed that this year, uh, unlike last year, somebody hadn't managed to get to the top of the church tower at the end of my street and hang a uh, school bag from the end of the flagpole. Oh, last year, someone did that. That's impressive. And it's about, it must be about sort of... 50 meters above the ground wow, or something like that. that's some ingenuity right there. <laughs> <laughs> Extensive efforts to reform the pension system hit a last-minute snag this week when the interest rate used to calculate how much money the pension funds have to keep in the reserve was reduced. An advisory committee headed by former finance minister Jeroen Dijsselbloem made the binding recommendation to the Dutch National Bank. It means pension funds' assets will grow at a slower rate and that means they'll need to hold more in reserve to keep their cover at the legally required level. The government has spent nine years negotiating with unions and employers to modernise the system, and the plans are being put to a vote by the largest union, the FNF, this week. But the prospect of pension funds cutting payouts if they can't keep up their reserves has prompted fears that the whole plan could be thrown out by the FNF's members. Prime Minister Mark Rutte warned at his weekly press conference last Friday that there was no plan B. So, uh, 
what are these plans, Gordon? We discussed this, of course, uh, in, in length in, uh, yeah, in the podcast, I think, last week. Yeah. But first of all, the government has changed its plans to raise the pension age so that it'll now increase more slowly. So instead of going up by a year for every anticipated year that we live longer, it'll rise by eight months per year. And the pension age will reach 67 three years later than the first planned, now in 2024. There'll also be new rules to allow people in physically or mentally demanding jobs to retire earlier without penalty. Secondly, the way people save their pensions will change so that the contributions in the early years will pay out more because they've had more time to accumulate interest. That's generally seen as fairer. And there'll be new rules for freelancers to make it easier for them to join the big pension schemes, but they will also be required to take out insurance against working capacity, which a lot of freelancers are unhappy with. As I say, you can listen back to last week's podcast for a full breakdown. Yeah, we'll link to that in the line of yeah. notes. Many Eastern Europeans in the Netherlands will leave because the economies in their home countries are growing and wages are rising. That's according to a new report by Abe and Amro economists. Currently, some quarter of a million people from Poland, Romania, and Bulgaria work in the Netherlands. They often do poorly paid work on short-term contracts. Now those Eastern Europeans' economies are growing and the populations are shrinking, so wages are likely to see a rise, which encourages those people to move home. The departure of these workers will have an impact on the already tight Dutch labor market. In particular, the farming sector, manufacturing, construction, and transport will be hit because companies in these sectors are already feeling the impact of a shortage of workers. And there's been evidence that some of these groups uh, have been exploited by unscrupulous employers. Right? Yeah, yeah, the Dutch statistics agency, CBS, said earlier this year that workers from Poland, Romania, and other Eastern and Central European countries earn the lowest wages of all immigrant groups. Some 80% of the 180,000 Polish nationals working in the Netherlands earn less than 15 euros per hour, and 18% earn less than 10 euros per hour, which is below minimum wage. And this is kind of the flip side of um, the, the whole kind of trans-European migration. You hear a lot about Eastern European workers coming in and undercut the Dutch workers, but it's also a real, had a real impact on the host countries because yeah. people are leaving these countries in such large numbers that the populations are decreasing. Yeah. They don't have enough people to actually support the social services and yeah. it does the opposite of what the European Union is supposed to achieve, which right. is to make all these countries prosper. But actually, right. The richer countries are benefiting at the expense of the, the countries that are, that are losing their populations. Yeah, yeah but now with this uh, sort of uptick in economic growth in these countries, yeah. the, the Netherlands is really going to get hurt, I think, in terms of like having you know, a shortage of uh, laborers, cheap, cheap labor. Cheap yeah. labor. Um, and, you know, that makes it, you know, more difficult for people here to to be able to do things like, uh, you know, build new houses or renovate your house mm -hmm. or, you know, do agricultural labor. So, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, we. It, I think overall it's probably a very positive thing for most of these workers that they have opportunities in their home countries, which may be where they yeah. want to live anyway. But you're definitely going to, you're going to feel the pinch here. In sport, the Dutch women's football team got their World Cup campaign off to a winning start, but it was by the skin of their teeth. It took till the 92nd minute for Jill Roer to break the deadlock in their opening match against New Zealand with a close-range header. The Leovinen are European champions and among the favourites to win the World Cup, but they've never made it past a group stage before. Coach Serena Wiechmann admitted the Dutch hadn't been on top of their game. Our play was too slow, our movement was not cute, and sometimes we did not play with accuracy, she said, possibly via Google Translate. Yeah, I was going to say, that's, a, that's, <laughs> not a, that's an interesting yeah. uh, choice of words. Oranje's next match is against Cameroon on Saturday, before the final group game against Canada next Thursday. Uh, before I ask about the men, yeah, just a slight aside, how did the U.S. team do in this, uh, Gordon? I think they had an easier team than New Zealand. Uh, That's possible. <laughs> I think it's fair to say, given that the uh, that they managed to win thirteen nil. Yes, which kind of impressive. makes a bit of a mockery of the World Cup. Really. I, 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 I thought it was sort of typically um, uh, American, unnecessarily ungracious. They could have just sort of just stopped at four nil and. Uh, 
kept things respectable. Why would you to, do that? Why do you have to humiliate her? Up and coming. I mean, it's, I don't think it's humiliating. Learn, learn to play better. God. <laughs> I uh, do not follow football at all, as any regular listener to this podcast knows. But my street has gotten very into the Women's uh, uh, yes, World saw, Cup. Yeah. So they've decorated, like, the whole street. Yeah. So you've got um, the orange bunting out. Yeah. yeah. And uh, we're celebrating the Dutch women's victory. But one of the guys across the street came over on... I guess it was Sunday, and uh, yeah, it was like, oh yeah, and like the U.S. are doing really well, and I was like, oh, I didn't know the U.S. were in it, and then he insisted <laughs> on making me watch a bunch of clips of like the U.S. beating Thailand, so yeah. I was that's the only reason I was aware. And uh, the subpar men, how are they doing, Gordon? Well, better than recently. They made it all the way to the final of the Nations League, um, which okay. we're not even going to go into what it is or how it works, but mm-hmm. they, they came up against the host nation, Portugal. Now, if you know your football history, you know what happens when the Dutch play the host nation in the final of a major tournament, they, um, lose. they lose. And that's what they did this time. They lost 1-0. Mm. Although you could tell from the reaction of the players after the whistle, they weren't that bothered, really. They just sort of thought, just sort of finally we can go on holiday now. They're used to yeah. it. Well, not just that, they, they weren't really that devastated because it's the Nations League and no one really cares. Yeah. Uh, Ronald Koeman did his best to sound disappointed. He said his team didn't create enough chances. Portugal looked like a more solid, more experienced team, which, uh, which they are. But he said Iran had made great strides during the competition because they beat Germany, France and England on the way to the finals. So they beat two Good footballing nations and England. And England. Yeah. YouTube finally cracked down on Nazis this week in entirely the wrong way. The video sharing site removed all archive material belonging to the regional archive in Alkmaar for, quote, hate mongering. The material YouTube objected to included images from World War II, which featured swastikas and other Nazi symbols, which may have been the reason for its removal. But other historic images of the town uh, were also removed. Ironically, this happened on International (laughs) Archive Day. YouTube announced earlier this week that it was beefing up its policy against hate mongering. The archive was back (laughs) online shortly before 12 a.m. on Monday after thousands of people protested. Right, so basically people have been on them for literally years to take down sort of Nazis, so they thought the way to do it was to take down the actual Nazis. Yeah, the actual Nazis. historical footage. historical footage. The stuff that's meant to remind you why encouraging Nazis again is a bad idea. Yeah, that stuff. Yeah. So what's prompted this crackdown? A Vox Media journalist, Carlos Maza, went on a Twitter rant last week about how one YouTuber in particular responds to a lot of the work that Maza does, calling him a lot of anti-gay slurs, Maza's gay, um, essentially sicking his followers on him. This has led to Maza being intensely harassed. He's been doxxed. Yeah, yeah, it's been kind of ugly. This guy's really obsessed with him, isn't it? I've seen some of these It's really, like, it's very creepy. So Maza called out YouTube for not enforcing its own policies about harassment. This gained a lot of traction online. So then YouTube announced this week that it was cracking down. It seems that... Alkmaar just got caught in the middle. It's a bit like Rockle. Really. Yes, it's yeah. a bit like Rockle. In, in so many, many ways. <laughs> we'll be discussing Islamic State orphans after this word from our sponsors. If you've enjoyed listening to the Dutch News podcast, you can now sponsor us on Patreon at patreon.com slash dutchnewsonl. This week we have one new Patreon backer, so we'd like to say a big thank you to Eric Browning from Vancouver in Canada. Um, who's now become a Dutch citizen by virtue of his uh, heritage, his, yeah. his family. His, his, his name Erik is spelled E-R-I-K, so it's kind of a Dutch form of Eric. Congratulations, Erik. Yeah, so well done, well done to you. Uh, he wants to move to the Netherlands long term. Now, everyone knows Vancouver was founded by George Vancouver, a British naval officer who charted much of the northwest Pacific coast in the 1790s. I totally knew that. 
Yeah, I'm sure he did. Definitely did. What's less well known is that George Vancouver was of Dutch stock. So his Ah. father, John Jasper Vancouver, was born in the Netherlands, and his family trace their lineage all the way back to a 14th century nobleman called Reinald van Koeferden, who comes from the town of Koeferden in Drenthe, which is the town I got married in. Wow. So uh, the name Vancouver. Such a small world. Yeah, so the name Vancouver has its roots in Drenthe. There we go. Eric says he's using the podcast to mug up on Dutch news and culture ahead of his anticipated move to the Netherlands. So, uh, yeah, well, uh, best of luck with that, Eric. I might want to get some other sources. Yeah, perhaps <laughs> find somebody that tells you something interesting. <laughs> but nevertheless, thank you very much for being a patron. He's also got a Twitter account for his dog, Jack. <gasps> he's a dog? He's a, he, he Did is, he send a photo of the dog? He Well, he sent a link to his um, dog's Twitter uh, mm, account, I'll which is, check it out. they used to call me Bacon. That's a, that's a fantastic... It's <laughs> uh, a good Twitter handle, thing. isn't it? Yeah, I really yeah. like that. We'll, 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 we'll I'm going to have to check this out. We'll have to follow Jack exactly. on Twitter. So why doesn't Truby have an account? Truby has an Instagram account. Yes, he does. Yeah, yes, Truby has an Instagram. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, he's an influencer. So he's in, yeah, all right. So he's, he's more... Yeah, he's, he's beyond Twitter. He's, he's too, beyond he's, Twitter. He's, he's too, too hip for Twitter. He's too young yeah. for Twitter, I think. Oh, he is true. It's Twitter's... Jack must be an old dog, because only older people are on Twitter. If you want your own shout-out on the podcast, you can kick us some cash by sponsoring us via Patreon and you can find that at patreon.com slash dutchnewsnl. We'll include a link to that in the liner notes. Hey, well. Two Dutch children, orphaned in Syria after their IS-supporting parents were killed, have been handed over to the Dutch authorities, the foreign minister confirmed on Monday. The children, aged two and four, were part of a group of children removed from a camp in Syria by the French authorities and transferred to Dutch care. Their mother, who is Dutch, died earlier this year at the camp, and the father, who is Belgian, was killed some time ago. This announcement has reignited the debate about what to do with returning IS fighters and their children in the Netherlands. So how many people are we talking about here, first of all? Not a whole lot. So around 4,000 people with European nationality are thought to have left their home nations to travel to Syria and Iraq to fight for the Islamic State over a period of, you know, sort of 10 years or so. This includes around 300 adults and 175 children uh, with Dutch nationality. Most of those children were born there as opposed to being brought by their parents. Um, An estimated 90 of those adults died in the conflict and some 60 have returned to the Netherlands. So you're talking... 150 or so who are kind of like left either still in the conflict zone or now many of them are in like sort of refugee camps yeah. or in some sort of custody either in Syria or Iraq. So they've been, they've been round up in the camps, often the Kurds are looking after them, running the camps. The Kurds yeah. kind of want to shut down the camps yes. and send everyone away. Yeah. So they're in this kind of limbo situation where nobody wants them. The Dutch don't want to bring them home. Yeah. The Kurds don't want them in their territory either. Yeah, so it's a bit complicated because yeah. officially uh, the government's Dutch government's policy is is that it will not do anything to assist Dutch citizens unless they report to a diplomatic mission in either Iraq or in Turkey. So there's some concern that these people have been radicalized and that the Dutch mm-hmm. government doesn't necessarily want to bring them back to the yeah. Netherlands. However, the larger sort of problem is like the logistics of actually getting to them. Most of them are in refugee camps in regions where it's very difficult and dangerous to reach. Um, uh-huh. The Dutch government does not want to take risks in bringing them back. Yeah. Um, so not everybody he agrees last year the Dutch children's ombudsman called for the government to go get uh, Dutch children out of these yeah. camps. A sort of extra bit of confounding problem with this this is, is that it's very difficult to get to them in particular without going through Iraq to do it. So the yeah. ones that are in Iraq obviously are already there, but the ones in Syria, often the sort of safest passage out is via Iraq. Yeah. And Iraq which is has, not very safe. Which is not very safe. Yeah. 
but Iraq has been prosecuting IS fighters. Uh, yeah. Iraq does not have the most uh, sort of fair uh, and judicious uh, judicial system. That's fair um, to say. They also have the death penalty. Yes. And so the Dutch government does not want um, people to be prosecuted in Iraq for these crimes because, right. of course, it's sort of like a kangaroo court at which you get executed. Um, yes. The Iraqis actually executed eight or, or convicted uh, eight French uh, people, people, men of French yeah. nationality um, and sentenced them to death like last week. So yeah. this is a thing that happens. Yeah. And this is a big reason, isn't it, why the French are bringing people back yeah. from the, the region because yeah. they say that if they leave them there, it, the Iraqis will pick them up and they will sentence them to death and the French are dead against the death penalty. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so the challenge is also that like if you try to extract them out via Iraq, that the Iraqi authorities, of course, have the right to arrest them and mm-hmm. detain them and then prosecute them in their own country so that's yeah. causing a bit of like a diplomatic like sort of issue in that sense and that's just and the dutch justice minister fair clapperhouse has said he doesn't want to send diplomats into the region because it's unsafe for them yeah. so he doesn't want to put dutch citizens at yeah. risk yeah i mean it's yeah. quite it's quite unsafe um we don't have a ton we were talking about this before we started yeah. recording that we don't have a ton of great information about what exactly is going on in these camps mm. because it's so difficult to get there to reach them that like journalists are unable to do it that yeah. like aid workers are having a hard time getting in so a lot of the information is like kind of unclear in terms yeah. of like total numbers what the conditions are these sorts of things so you know this is an active war zone it was not a place that was particularly uh sort of safe and easy to get to before the islamic Mm -hmm. state sort of became a thing i mean most of those regions governments i mean you know syria is in a state of civil war the iraqi government has its own like issues this is a very difficult place to get to and it's very unclear how you would even how you would even get these people out. You know, this is not a situation where like one Dutch citizen has been kidnapped and maybe you could, you know, send yeah. in some sort of people to rescue them. I mean, you're talking about hundreds of like children. It's quite difficult to sort of extract them out of these places. Yeah, so. and, and they're in Kurdish controlled territory. And of yeah. course the Netherlands doesn't recognize the Kurds as uh, any kind of legit- legitimate government. So right. there's no representation. There's right. no sort of, you know, diplomatic contact. They'd have to be sort of going into a place, you know, with no real cover right. at all. And so it's, uh, out. So it's, it's real it's really complicated. Tough. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, do yeah, and do most of these people want to come back to Europe? Some of them do. Um, the parents of Dutch citizens who left to fight in the war in Syria have launched a foundation to try to force the government to help them return to the Netherlands. Last year, they did that. Mm-hmm. A lawyer, there's a Dutch lawyer who's representing a number of the Dutch women currently stuck in Syrian refugee camps, and there that lawyer is suing to attempt to force the government to negotiate for the safe passage of their return. So some of these people want to uh, want to return home. Uh, yeah. Unsurprisingly, the conditions in these camps are pretty terrible yeah. it seems um we have heard a lot of stories of uh adults and also children dying of malnutrition and mm. contagious diseases yeah. so it does not seem like they are in a fantastic situation so i don't think it's surprising that a lot of them like want to yeah. want to return or would like to at least leave the camps so yeah. That's surprising, yeah and in the case of these two children of course who were who were orphaned in the camps and now on their own what happened there was a, a court in the netherlands appointed the dutch state as the legal guardian of the kids yes. at which point then the dutch had a legal responsibility under the Dutch under Dutch system, law under yeah. Dutch law to to, to get to, to make sure they were, that they were safe and they can't be safe in the camps they've right. got to go and get them home I think yeah. that's how this all started that then kicked up a big political row because a lot of opposition politicians and populist parties at PVV said you know this is um, uh, the Dutch government bringing jihadis home but actually right. it wasn't a political decision it was a court decision I yeah. think where the reporting has been yeah deficient in a lot of ways is it, it, it's kind of it's focused too much I think on the row between political parties rather than just yeah. the fact that this is a court has ordered the state to take care of these children yeah which 
to me is in the face of it a good thing, but it brings all kinds of complications yeah. into the system. Yeah, and another question yeah. that gets brought up is is that like, well, if it's unsafe for these two kids to be there, why is it okay yeah. for the kids to be there who have a living parent, right? Like the conditions aren't any better for them just because, yeah. you know, their mother or father is like still alive. So you know, in a sense, these two children got kind of like quote unquote lucky because the, they were sort of forced by by Dutch law to do this. Yeah. Um, it's not clear kind of what's going to happen to the rest of the, the Dutch children that are there. Yeah. And what's going to happen to if people do get home, either under their own steam or by any other means, especially the adults who returned to the Netherlands? So most of them faced some kind of charges. Yeah. Um, it kind of varies from person to person. There was a number of Dutch citizens who left, who had been tried in absentia in Rotterdam. They've been sentenced to jail if they return. I think they've been sentenced to nine years in jail. Yeah. Of course, conditions in Dutch jails are like much better than they are in Syrian refugee camps. Um, so it's understandable that they would rather face jail here than continue to stay there. There was also a case um, a couple of months ago where a uh, Rotterdam uh, court also declared that there was a group of women who needed to be brought back to face trial, mm -hmm. which puts the government in the awkward position of like being legally required to attempt to like extract them out of here. So that's like also creating yeah. like some complications. But yeah, I mean, I think like you said, politically, it's like somewhat complicated. I mean, I think if you accuse a two-year-old and a four-year-old uh, of being jihadis that you are a garbage yeah. human being, like looking at you, Bode. Yeah. Um, and the there was a guy from the PPP, I think, uh, Mikhail de Kraft, yeah. who came up with the argument. He says, yeah, we, we shouldn't let these kids back because they might have been radicalized. You think, yeah. a two-year-old? A two-year-old. What threat is a two-year-old going yeah. to pose to your country? I mean, how Seriously. many memories do you yeah. even have from being <laughs> two? The answer is yeah. none. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, so, I just... They may have been indoctrinated, but I kind of think that the age of two is quite easy to sort of, you know... Um, De-indoctrinate de them? Like, yeah, just take them trouble. to preschool and let them hang out there? <laughs> exactly, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that, like... You know, everyone's pretty universally unsympathetic. Anyone with a, a conscience is unsympathetic to this ar yeah. argument. I think the adults are a slightly more complicated um, question, but there's like sort of two issues here. One is kind of the straight up logistics, like as we kind of talked about, which yeah. is, is that it's not clear even if the Dutch government was, even if everyone in the Netherlands was really on favor of bringing all these people home, exactly like how you would do that, like yes. logistically. Um, I don't think anybody wants to send in a bunch of Dutch foreign service officers and have them be killed in this conflict right like in yeah. an attempt to like bring these people back so i think the logistics question is like one kind of issue um and i think the secondary question is then so if you do bring them back like what is the sort of procedure for dealing with them once mm. they are here i mean these people you know i think some of this is very complicated in a lot yeah. of ways um uh the swedish interior minister has uh proposed that the european union set up a special tribunal to prosecute islamic state fighters there's been mm -hmm. some proposals to do this before the un which has repeatedly gotten shut down by russia they have a complicated relationship Indeed. with syria yeah. so it's not clear exactly like how one kind of prosecutes this because obviously essentially what this became was like sort of a a civil war a civil uprising yes. in syria and parts of like northern iraq which like it's not illegal in the netherlands to be involved in a war in a foreign country yeah. like unsurprisingly i mean it's not illegal in most countries to be involved in a foreign war i mean if you are a... yeah but it is, is is illegal to um fight on behalf of an enemy um, com, um yeah organization, enemy organization or of terrorist the state, yeah. which is how they've which is what a lot of the charges brought against the people who went to syria have, uh, have involved yeah and that yeah. um also becomes very complicated because i think there's a lot of questions about how you make it illegal to be a member of an organization and where that exactly like sort of falls. Yeah. There's been a lot of discussion about this in Dutch, um, in Dutch law with, um, with regards to the Hells Angels and these sort of like motorcycle clubs, but yeah. the same kind of rules apply, right? Like 
everybody gets very squeamish when you say it's illegal to belong, like when you want to make it a prosecutable mm-hmm. charge to belong to an organization. And like, what does it even mean to belong to an organization? Yeah. I mean, like, it's not like the Islamic State necessarily had like a dues paying like list where you fill out your form every year, you know, like your union or whatever. Like if you express support for them, are you yeah. part of their like organization? So I think. And also, yeah, in, and in the case of Syria, obviously, you have a lot of cases where um, young men have gone to Syria and picked up a gun and yeah. fought and killed yeah. people. That's pretty straightforward. But some of the women have gone along and they've sort of been involved in cooking and looking yeah. after children yeah. and, you know, doing some sort of offering backup support. At what point do you draw, do you cross the line and right. say that is supporting a terrorist organization? Yeah. That's been... And I mean, also, I think that, like, you know, we, it's complicated to sort of, I mean, the, the re... The reason that we get very squeamish about them is because the Islamic State was sort of purporting itself to want to yeah. take over large parts of the world and turn it into yeah. like they sort of a caliphate. Establish a caliphate right. yeah. um, you know, would we feel so squeamish about returning quote unquote fighters if you were talking about, say, I don't know, some guys that have gone to uh, the North Korean border and were clashing there with border guards in order mm-hmm. to, like, bring down the North Korean regime. Like, we would probably feel less uncomfortable with that. Yeah. Or, like, you know, the this uh, population of, of the ethnic minority, the Uyghurs in China, right? The, like, if there was a lot of Uyghur citizens who are here who had returned to China to try to fight against the Chinese yeah. regime and what they are doing to, like, these people. I mean, I suspect that we would not feel so squeamish about, like, making it illegal to fight on behalf of like well, exactly. some sort of or, or, if, you know, or say you know if your country being occupied by a neighboring country which yeah. had a fascist regime and you, and you sort of set bombs and uh, killed their officers which is actually what the Dutch did 75 yeah. years ago right know, so you know if you're Ukrainian <laughs> if you're living in the Netherlands and you're Ukrainian and you have gone to fight in Crimea to keep the Russians out. Like, I think that there's people, so, you know, one man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter, right? Like, so I think that this is like really complicated stuff. I do think that it's pretty obvious that, that some of these people sort of joined this organization with the end of wanting to, you know, wreak havoc on uh, Western countries, you know, in the the Netherlands in this case, because we're talking about like the Dutch fighters. So, I mean, I think that there's like some questions there. I mean, like, yeah, I think it's really hard to like sort of prosecute kind of these sorts of war crimes. I mean, war crimes in general are very difficult to prosecute. I mean, like the fog of war is really a thing. Um, Mm. And it's hard to get inside people's heads and judge their intentions. I think you've got to more judge their actions. Often people who went to Iraq were, especially people like uh, impressionable teenagers, 16, 17, um, they they were radicalized, but they're also told that they were going to take part in a war of liberation, yeah. first of all, and they were going to establish this utopian society. And it was only a point when they actually got there that they discovered that both of these two things are absolute garbage. Right. Yeah, you know, they're basically working for a bunch of gangsters and terrorist yeah. organization, and that you know the Islamic State was not this wonderful utopia. It was uh, you know it was absolute hellhole. Yeah, exactly. But by the time they got into that, they were in, they're, they're in too deep. Yeah, to get out late. easily. It's too late. Yeah. You're done. You yeah. know, and like yeah. in teenagers do dumb shit i mean we all did dumb things when we were teenagers i mean not fortunately quite as dumb enough as joining the islamic state but i did a whole host of stupid things learn and grow from these things and you like hope that you have some leeway to like uh uh, make amends for those things when you are an adult so like how responsible are we going to hold like these 16 and 17 year olds you know responsible for being basically brainwashed by an organization tricked into essentially yeah. going there and then forced into a situation where they had to basically fight or die yeah but also you know the assumption is that they come back still radicalized and still wanting to fight for islamic state right. when actually the experience they've had there has turned them right off the idea yeah. altogether and the last thing they want to do actually they just want to they're absolutely traumatized of you know their, their, their lives have been destroyed they've often lost children 
You know, yeah. the, the husbands who took them there, or, or the, the, the partners are no longer there, or they're dead, or they've, they're no longer with them, and they just want their, their lives are destroyed. They just want to get back and pick up the pieces. Yeah. And you know, the assumption they're still going to be, you know, diehard uh, jihadist terrorists, I think, is a bit of a naive yeah. um, uh, supposition. Yeah. In some cases, it will be true, but in many cases, it won't be. I mean, you think of the case like the most famous case is probably Laura Hansen. Yeah. Who, you know, was in who uh, grew up in Zutomir and um, um, uh, married um, uh, a Muslim fundamentalist and went to Syria and discovered within weeks of getting there that it was not where she wanted to be. And there was a whole fight by her family to get her back and smuggle her back across the border. Yeah, um, which were all kinds of you know sort of uh, underhand tricks, and they sort of had to get a sort of mercenary organisation basically yeah. to go in and. And bring her back and bring her, her back. And yeah. even when she was back over, well, they were still saying, you know, um, asking, are you not coming back here to sort of be a terrorist in the yeah. Netherlands? When it was quite apparent that, you know, yeah, <laughs> she did. She did really learn her lesson. She did learn a lesson. She was kind of sick and tired of the whole yeah. jihadist thing. Yeah. So, I mean, you have this very complicated issue of even getting these people back to the Netherlands. And then you have this very complicated, I think, question about what exactly you charge them with if you want to charge them with like some mm. sort of crime. And then I think you have this further complicated question about like how you sort of ensure that. That you're not bringing back people who want to do harm to the Dutch state or to Dutch citizens, um, but that you know you have an obligation to do something on behalf of your citizens to make sure that they're yeah. like not in harm's way. So all of those things, and that sort of deals with the adults. And then you have this like extra complication of like the fact that there's all these like children involved who I think like we agree, you know, two year olds should not be considered terrorists under mm -hmm. any circumstances. Um, and so like you know what obligation do you have to bring these kids back? I mean, these two particular kids that sort of sparked this discussion were extracted um, by the French who have been much more aggressive in trying to get their citizens out. Mm. Um, and the reason that they were extracted is because the Dutch state was granted guardianship over them and under Dutch law is obliged to try to, you know, put make sure that they are not in harm's way. Yeah. But of course, they're not obliged to do things for the children that are there whose parents are still living, as we talked about. So... I don't know. Should they like? Should the deal yeah. be we'll take the kids back, but like we're gonna let the adults sit there yeah. and and and. But at that yeah. point, you're you're breaking up families. Is that yeah. how, is is that that how right you want to do things? I think yeah. it's very, it gets very complicated. Yeah. I think you, know, you have to look at each case independently. Every every situation yeah. will be different. Uh, so definitely, and I think. And the other thing, of course, you've had in the UK, you've had famously the Samira Begum case, yeah. where she's basically been rendered stateless. I think yeah. that's a really disturbing trend. Yeah, that's a really awful. disturbing trend. And I think you know whatever people have done and whatever attitudes they've taken with them and might bring back home with them, the government you know, still, you know, to me, one of the basic duties of the government is to protect the rights of your citizens. Even right. if you, you know, if you decide you're going to convict and judge people for what they've done out there, you still don't erode the basic rights yeah. to citizenship, yeah. which affects everybody. As soon yeah. as you've done it for one person, you've made one person stateless. If yeah. you set a precedent, you can do for others. I yeah. think that's really disturbing. Yeah, I agree to do that. that under cover of fighting terrorism is pretty cynical. Yeah, I agree with so, that completely. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you know, the Dutch have jails here. Like, you can put people in jail exactly. if that's yeah. really what you want to do. I'm not sure that that, I think that personally, I think that that's the solution, but like... In some cases it might be. But yeah, in some cases it might yeah. be, in some cases it might not be. Yeah, I'm real glad I don't have to make like policy decisions about this because all of this seems extremely complicated and yeah. terrible and difficult to try to figure out exactly, yeah, how you're going to handle all of this like stuff. I think, yeah, I suppose to end on a positive note, at least firstly the courts have made this decision these children need to be looked after and the state is responsible and the government has actually honored that decision yeah and got in and got them in the face of an awful lot of flack yeah from opposition politicians you've yeah. seen is an easy hit yeah so i think some credit needs to be uh, yeah. extended to them for that that's all that we have for you this week this podcast is a production of dutch news which can be found online at dutchnews.nl we will include links to everything we've talked about today in the liner notes 
You can send comments, compliments, and abuse by email to podcast at dutchnews.nl. You can also now back us on Patreon at patreon.com slash dutchnewsnl. My thanks to Gordon Derrick. I'm Molly Quell. We still don't have any idea where Paul is. No. We'll be back next week. Possibly with Paul. We don't know. Yeah, maybe with Paul. Yeah.